Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it's easier to listen on the computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, France 24, Radio Havana, Cuba, and NHK World Radio Japan. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Just this morning, British Prime Minister Liz Truss announced her resignation. The act had been speculated for a few days, but it is still stunning, and her six-week reign is the shortest in UK history. A British analyst explains the situation. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. British Prime Minister Liz Truss has resigned uh, just after six weeks in office. Her announcement comes after a bruising week of U-turns on economic and energy policy and a backlash from her own Conservative Party. Today's resignation makes her the shortest-serving Prime Minister in UK history. In a speech outside Downing Street, Truss said she can no longer deliver on the mandate for which she was elected. I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Now let's bring in Quentin Peel. He's a former commentator for the Financial Times and now with the Chatham House think tank. Uh, Quentin, how, how did it come to all this? Well, they rushed Liz Truss into office when Boris Johnson was sacked. Um, the third prime minister they've had in a row, first Boris Johnson overthrew Theresa May, you'll remember. And I think that they jumped for somebody in Liz Truss who was simply really not capable of holding the party together. She wooed the right wing of the Conservative Party, the hardline Brexiteers, to believe that she was the right person. And almost immediately, it's all blown up in her face. She represents a thoroughly divided party, and now they're going to try and hang on to power. Mm. It's, it's a contradiction in terms, really. Now, you mentioned uh, Boris Johnson there. There are already reports that, that he is throwing his hat in the ring to uh, uh, replace uh, Truss after just having resigned. What, what's to that? 
I think it just shows really how chaotic the situation is. I saw an immediate reaction from one of the Conservative members of Parliament who said, if Boris Johnson were elected to be Prime Minister again, I would leave and join the Labour Party. So there, there really wouldn't be support uh, with a very significant number of his own members of Parliament. They regard Boris Johnson as a, a sort of... Um, he's a winner electorally, but he's a loser as Prime Minister. He was a dreadful Prime Minister who misbehaved, misled the House of Commons and lost credibility to the office. Mm. So I think that it would be a sign of desperation if they turned back to him. Well, calls for a general election are growing louder by the minute. Can the Conservative Party really afford to ignore that? I think they're going to try and ignore it, um, but there is it's not just the opposition parties. Clearly, the Labour Party is demanding a general election. It's very clear from the opinion polls that that is what a clear majority of voters, way over 70%, want a general election. But the truth is that an awful lot of Conservative members of Parliament would be condemned to lose their seats and therefore lose their incomes if they went for a general election. And as we say in English, usually Usually, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. It looks like going for a general election would be voting for a turkey's Christmas. Is Labour really interested in holding a, a general election right now, given the difficult situation the country is in? I, I think they would be quite torn, actually, because whoever takes power uh, at this moment faces a very severe economic crisis. They face the consequences of the war in Ukraine and they face all the problems uh, following COVID and the really critical state of the National Health Service. Having said all of that, there is a fundamental problem at the heart of this that was self-inflicted, and that is the whole Brexit process. It split the Conservative Party. Party, it split the Labour Party and it split the country. Whoever comes to power has got to try and heal those deep divisions. Uh, you mentioned here on DW that the decision for Brexit would haunt the country for years. Is that what we are seeing today? Absolutely. I think it, it, it is absolutely right. It was a terrible self-inflicted wound. It's, it's had economic consequences because the trade with Europe has, has slumped and inward investment into the United Kingdom, which over the years has tended to be uh, the one benefit to the country, that has also declined sharply because outside Europe, the, the British Isles are no longer as an attractive a place to do business as they used to be. So Brexit has been very much a self-inflicted wound, above all at the uh, behest of the Conservative Party. But Labour is scared of making a big issue as well because, as I said, it divides the country right down the middle. Quentin Peel, thank you very much for your insight. That analysis was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. They also have RSS feeds. Next, France 24. First, a report on the protest and strikes across France on Tuesday that saw tens of thousands of citizens demanding that the government deal with inflation. Then an interview with the Pakistani Minister of Foreign Affairs, Hina Rabini Kar.
She discusses whether we are in a world war, a demand for the cessation of military hostilities, how climate change has destroyed much of her country, international aggressiveness, and how China is not seen as a threat to its neighbors. France 24 Frustrated with the rising cost of living and stagnant salaries, thousands took to the streets of Paris on Tuesday, demanding action from both employers and the government. When we go from working into retirement, we have half of our salary, but everything else is going up. We're very concerned about the cost of living. We haven't gone on holiday in three years. It's been 12 years since the Nicolas Sarkozy regime, and the index point that determines civil servant salaries hasn't moved. The protests, which also hit other French cities, come after weeks of walkouts at oil refineries over salary increases. The industrial action has sparked fuel shortages, particularly in northern France, and the government ordered some employees back to work. The move angered the hard-left CGT union, which urged other sectors around France to strike on Tuesday. A call heeded by some high school teachers, public hospital employees and transport workers. Wages for someone starting at the Paris Transport Authority is a bit above the minimum wage. It's 1,400 to 1,500, so it's largely insufficient. We need to seize this incredible opportunity that the refineries have brought us. The strikes represent Macron's biggest challenge since he won a second term in April. And demonstrations are only expected to continue as he seeks to implement his flagship domestic policy of raising the retirement age. Pakistan's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Hina Rabani Kar, thank you for being with us here Pleasure on France here. 24. I, I need your reaction to what we're seeing unfolding mm. now. Iran aligning with Russia, NATO backing Ukraine. Are we already in a world war? I hope not. I mean, I don't think the world, certainly not the planet, can afford a war. Uh, it seems we are happily waltzing into one. Uh, and that's why uh, countries like Pakistan bring enrich, I believe, the multilateral fora because of our own experience of conflict in our backyard for decades. And to see that a lot of money, weapons, uh, effort, blood spent eventually has to somehow be dealt with or to be solved or left unsolved on the negotiating table. Therefore, uh, we look at all of this and uh, our perspective on this uh, is, uh, uh, has remained uh, consistent, which is that there must be immediate cessation of hostility so more people don't lose lives and then get to the negotiation, negotiating table. We are actually a country which is quite used to other countries, very large countries making nuclear threats. Prime Minister Modi recently uh, made a statement that he had not kept nuclear weapons for Diwali. Our message to everyone who uses these things callously or the threat of such weapons callously is that uh, responsibility is required for those who own um, or have a place, have a seat uh, on the table. We must all go back to the principles of the UN Charter, applicable universally, whether it's in the East or West, Asia or Europe, I tell you, the world might truly become a different place if we start doing that. Within a period of few months, we saw forest fires, which were unprecedented in Pakistan's history, extreme drought conditions, which we've had before. And in the same area, 
that we had drought conditions. Now we had these what could be called extreme flooding, which was frankly speaking, not riverian flooding even. It was literally flooding, which was happening because of climate change, because of three degrees higher temperatures. Uh, I think it's a sign where everybody must coalesce their energies, their resources and, and when, come together to a country like this, especially when we come to the difficult part of rebuilding and reconstruction. And for that and rebuilding, the prime minister calling for mega funds. What does he mean specifically? How much? How? Where? Look, if you look at the replacement cost uh, of the damage that has been done to infrastructure, which includes roads, schools, colleges, everything, housing, you're probably looking at a number which is very large, about $30 billion or so. But what do you want to do? You don't want to just build back in a poor manner or in a dirty manner. You want to build back in a manner which has adaptation and resilience built into it. We know enough, enough of that exists in our arsenal, so to speak, as to how to do it. But we need resources to be able to do it. Now, Pakistan being a country which has not contributed to uh, the climate crisis, we are not even 0.8%, about 0.8% is our carbon footprint. Do we deserve to fight this alone when this is a mess that is not of our own making? And especially when this is actually hurting the people who are least deserving of it because this is the poorest of the poor. So in Pakistan, I believe this is not a Pakistan moment. It's a climate change moment. It's, it's a, a climate crisis moment. Have the French told you what date would be set for this? So we are looking at, we are hoping for somewhere in the, because people cannot wait for three months to start rebuilding their homes, right? So we're looking at, we, we're hoping for somewhere around the end of November, early December at best. But uh, we are asking for end of November. Uh, we've been talking about these great, great power uh, sort of confrontations mm -hmm. uh, on the war in Ukraine on uh, the climate change that's directly affecting Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, right now, there's a very important Chinese Communist Party Congress mm -hmm. taking place. And uh, China's role is coming under the spotlight and uh, that uh, it's been a kind of debt diplomacy, said mm -hmm. some. Uh, you're a country that owes money to China. Mm -hmm. uh, your thoughts on uh, how you borrow and how you deal with China going forward? Okay, so this is very interesting because when you talk about uh, a region, it really is very telling that the country, the region that that country f comes from, barring India, all of its China's neighbors have a pretty uh, good view about China's role for peace, regional peace and stability. But outside of the region, countries have a very difficult view, which we come across every day. Uh, we don't look at this as debt diplomacy at all. We look at it as infrastructure diplomacy, at building room for convergence diplomacy because when you create infrastructure which links a country a certain country north south corridor build that corridor that corridor then uh, you know gives you nodes to be interconnected within the region so we look at it as regional connectivity not as a depth diplomacy at all i can only speak for my country and when i speak for my country i can tell you that all of this infrastructure that china has contributed towards in terms of assisting Pakistan with financial, not assistance, but financial, you know, sort of models to come up with, uh, are, are ones which we needed. And to be in, in, what is interesting to note is that we had already gone to the World Bank and to the Asian Development Bank and to the US and to the UK and to the EU saying that these are infrastructure projects that Pakistan would like to be funded if you have the financial resources to lend us the money to do so. So this is not something which is China-specific. This is certainly Pakistan-specific when I look at it in the broader scheme of things. And this is on Pakistan's demand rather than on China's supply. An important point to perhaps be noted. As far as the assertiveness of China is concerned, I believe every country is becoming much more confrontational and assertive. This is not only China. And I believe 
A lot of this had to do with the threat perception and the fear that has been built in by populist leaders all over the world. This is not, certainly not helping the world deal with the crises which are actually real, which are actually existential, such as the climate crisis, such as the food security crisis, such as the financial crisis. So we are happily now creating new crises which require money to be spent on arsenal building, on military building, rather than on dealing with the crises which are at our door, which are pretty much have the capacity to knock us all off the face of the planet. But we seem to think that we have bigger, better problems at hand, which is confrontation and more confrontation. Hina Rabani Kar, many thanks for joining us here on France 24. That interview is from France 24. France may be easily found at their website, france24.com, also as podcast, as well as on a YouTube channel called France 24 English. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. The Pakistani government summoned the U.S. ambassador for an official protest of Joe Biden's remarks on Pakistani nuclear weapons. Bolivian President Luis Arce has called for a unity to stop right-wing coup plotters who are seeking to destabilize the country. Rescue operations continue in Venezuela in the region destroyed by landslide after days of extreme rainfall. A new U.S. report warns that 69% of tracked animal species have declined since 1970. Radio Havana, Cuba. Pakistan has summoned the American ambassador to Islamabad for an official protest of for U.S. President Joe Biden's remarks on the country's nuclear weapons. In a speech last week, Biden questioned the safety of Pakistan's nuclear program. He said Pakistan is maybe one of the most dangerous nations in the world, as it has nuclear weapons without any cohesion. Biden's apparently off-the-cuff remark was made in the context of the changing geopolitical situation globally. The United States president claimed the world was changing rapidly and countries were rethinking their alliances. And the truth of the matter is, I generally believe this, that the world is looking to us, not a joke. Even our enemies are looking to us to figure out how we figure this out, what we do. Biden went on to boast that the United States has the capacity to lead the world. Pakistan's foreign minister, Bilawal Bhutto Sardari, said he was amazed by Biden's strange comments. As far as the question of the safety and security of Pakistan's nuclear assets are concerned, we meet all each and every international standard in accordance with the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, he said at a press conference. Bolivian President Luis Arce has called for the unity of the country's social organizations to confront the reorganizing of actions of the right-wing coup plotters seeking to destabilize the national government. The Bol Bolivian president stressed the importance of preserving unity to defeat coup attempts as well as to respect the statutes within social organizations. The head of state said, quote, The right-wing has been doing it. They have been trying to divide us from many of our brothers, but we have seen a lot of political maturity in understanding the real problem and facing it. Arce warned that the right-wing sectors want to show their strength and assure that his government seeks to work, produce and demand peace to face the adversities imposed by the current international context. He recalled that they are also working to overcome the eternal economic crisis in which the de facto government of Janine Inez left the country and which was supported by the current governor of the Department of Santa Cruz, Luis Fernando Camacho. In recent days, Governor Camacho, together with the pro-Santa Cruz committee, headed by Romulo Calvo, threatened the government with an 
definite strike starting October the 21st if it does not bring forward to 2023 the date of the population census scheduled for 2024. These right-wing sectors have refused to participate in dialogue processes on the subject before international organizations such as the United Nations Population Fund, the UN. FPA, the London American and Caribbean Democratic Centre, or CELADE, and Bolivian Social Organisations. In Venezuela, officials from the administration of President Nicolas Maduro remain deployed in the town of Las Tejeras, supervising the tasks for the recovery of the affected areas after the October 8th landslide. They confirmed that the death toll has risen to 50 people. Citizen Security Minister Remigio Ceballos has reported that 3,200 officials and members of the Bolivian National Armed Forces, the FANB, continue tirelessly in search and rescue efforts. Ceballos said, quote, We are working to provide comprehensive care to the people in terms of food, hydration, education, health and psychological support. We do not rule out that there will be still people who unfortunately are trapped in the rubble. We continue to carry out search operations. Ceballos added that Dog brigades will be able to act more efficiently when larger debris is removed. Health Minister Gabriela Jimenez confirmed that over 300 doctors and nurses are still deployed in Las Tejeras. The Venezuelan government reiterated its commitment to the full recovery of the areas affected by the rains and gave thanks for the international solidarity with the affected families. President Maduro tweeted, quote, The Bolivarian Revolution has gained a lot of experience in dealing with complex situations. A new report in the United States warns that some wild animal populations are declining on a devastating scale. The 2022 Living Planet Index finds populations of amphibians, birds, fish, mammals and reptiles that were tracked for the study have declined by an average of 69% since 1970. The report's authors note that population of many species have increased over that time even as the biodiversity of animal species continue to plunge rapidly. Due to the combined effects of habitat loss, overfishing, pollution, and the climate crisis. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though there's no podcast up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 606060 or 6165. At their website, you can stream the English version at noon Pacific Daylight Saving Time from Monday through Friday. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet, like a listener who makes an automatic monthly donation through PayPal. It's easy to do and most helpful to me. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with NHK World Radio Japan. Mayors from across the globe spent two days in Hiroshima discussing peace and ways to persuade governments to abandon nuclear weapons. South Korean and U.S. military troops are doing ground drills while the North fired more missiles as a countermeasure. 
the protest in Iran over the death of Masha Amini in police custody continue after a month with over a hundred Iranian citizens killed in clashes. NHK Japan. Mayors from countries across the globe have spent two days together in Hiroshima. They discussed ways to achieve peace and persuade governments to get rid of nuclear weapons. They wrapped up by issuing what they call the Hiroshima Appeal. Representatives of more than 8,000 municipalities attended the General Conference of Mayors for Peace. Their final appeal reflects the growing threats to peace since Russia invaded Ukraine. The mayors urged the United Nations and all national governments to reduce international tension and the risk nuclear weapons could be used. They also mentioned the wishes of atomic bomb survivors known as Hibaksha. They're asking leaders to share the Hibaksha's earnest desire for peace, work for nuclear disarmament, and abandon the notion of nuclear deterrence. The mayors also urged leaders to ratify the UN treaty that bans nuclear weapons and work harder to get rid of them. The mayors for peace plan to hold their next general conference in 2025 in the city of Nagasaki. The South Korean military has staged a river-crossing drill with U.S. forces, apparently with North Korea's ongoing military provocations in mind. Members of the media were invited to watch. More than 1,000 South Korean and U.S. troops took part in the exercise in Yeoju, Gyeonggi province. It was part of a regular field maneuver drill that began on Monday. Tanks and armored vehicles crossed the pontoon bridge over a 300-meter-wide river. In a simulation, a nearby bridge had been destroyed. South Korean military helicopters flew overhead. A drill like this is extremely important given the Korean Peninsula's geography with many rivers. So the purpose of the training today was to conduct a large-scale combined wet gap crossing operation to validate the capabilities of both the U.S. and Korean forces. The South Korean military says the exercise is designed to respond to a variety of potential threats, including those posed by Pyongyang's nuclear arms and missiles. On Wednesday, the North fired artillery shells for the second consecutive day toward the west of the Korean peninsula in the Yellow Sea. It described the action as a countermeasure to the South's ongoing military drills. It's been one month since Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian woman, died while in police custody. Her death sparked nationwide protest, which had been met with a violent crackdown by Iranian authorities. International observers say that's led to more killings. Amnesty International has confirmed at least 144 people, including 23 children, had been killed in clashes between Iranian security forces and protesters. Sporadic clashes between the security forces and demonstrators still continue, as demonstrators argue that Amini died from being beaten by police. The Iranian government says she died of heart failure. Solidarity protests have been held around the world. People in a number of countries have been staging demonstrations raise voices for women's rights in Iran. As public pressure grows, Iran's government has taken some policy steps. On Sunday, a parliamentary committee published a report that points to the need to review rules on headscarves through legal or other means.
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp and they are available as podcasts. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and E.U. prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show that's out farpress.com. At my website, you can listen to the past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.